Hey there, just butting in at the front of this episode to let you know that for the next couple of episodes we'll be taking up a slightly slower than usual release schedule of one episode every three weeks to help us smooth over some scheduling issues. Don't worry, we're not going away, and we're still committed to producing an excellent show, but scheduling things happen, and we would prefer to slow down for a little while rather than take an extended break. As always, thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoy the show. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this week we have no guests, unfortunately. It's the um, the OG unit crew um, back, <laughs> back in action. But um, we're going to be talking uh, over the next episode or two about uh, a book uh, called The Cybernetic Brain by Andrew Pickering, which uh, I think came out in 2010. Um, and it's um, it's really cool. It's, a, it's like a big sort of history of cybernetics, but like particularly about this... Um, loosely affiliated group of cyberneticians that were of a slightly different strain than um than is, is usually sort of acknowledged um yeah I, I found this to be absolutely fascinating material because going into this i, I thought i i knew cybernetics and i really didn't <laughs> you know <laughs> right yeah um we've we've seen a little bit uh through all watched over what american cybernetics looked like and through red plenty we've seen a little bit of what soviet cybernetics looked like but uh this book is mainly about british cybernetics mm. yeah it's um so like the, the 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 people that are kind of named out in the book are um Gray Walter, uh, Ross Ashby, you've Stafford Beer, uh, Gregory Bateson, R.D. Lang, and Gordon Pask are the sort of main characters. But um, because this this book is an absolute fucking monster, it is huge. <laughs> it's it's just, just colossal. So we're going to be ta- tackling only four chapters. We're, in this episode now, we're going to do the first two chapters, uh, the titled The Adaptive Brain and Ontological Theatre, and then in the the next episode, we're going to talk about um, the chapter on Stafford Beer, which is which is quite a chapter, and um, it's huge and extensive. I mean, I think I think many people probably have uh, read Cybernetic Revolutionaries, um, as you know, because of their interest in socialism and cybernetics. Um, which is, you know, and that is a, that is a much uh, briefer uh, read, <laughs> and uh, it is a, 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 you know, much more narrow exploration of, of Beer's career. Um, but yeah, in this in this book, we get a lot of different facets and aspects of Beer's work. Um, I think it's probably like one of the best, you know, uh, general uh, uh, books to cover. Beer's career, um, which was a big reason why uh, I suggested that we read the book because, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there, listeners, who are interested in Project Cybersyn and that kind of thing, uh, but I did want to give that sort of broader context of, uh, of Beer's career, and then maybe we'll go back to cybernetic revolutionaries later on in the series. That sounds like a good plan. It does. Because, um, yeah, this, 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 is a, this is a really sweeping 
broad overview of um, of everything, basically everything Stafford Beer had ever done. Um, and then we'll we'll close out that episode with the the final chapter, which is um, sketches of another future, in which um, Pickering just sort of like ties up a, a bunch of um, a bunch of threads and sort of restates some of the themes of the uh, of the book. Um, but yeah, no, this this is this is fantastic stuff. Um, so yeah, Kyle, why don't you lead us into uh, to chapter one? Uh, all right. Well, um, you know, uh, the first chapter uh, is called the adaptive brain. And uh, one of the main reasons why uh, it is titled that is because Pickering wanted to emphasize that for this particular group of cyberneticians, the human brain um, is a point of, of great importance, right? That, that is the point where they begin thinking from. Um, and that is not necessarily the case of all cybernetics. Um, and uh, certainly uh, it is a point that struck Pickering because, you know, in the, in the conclusion to the book, he talks about how when he started this project, he realized that he would actually have to learn something about brain science and became extremely uh, dismayed by this this prospect. (laughs) Yeah, like, um, Uh, I get the impression that this this whole project took him on a a hell of a trip, like, just, like, all over different sort of um, topics and stuff. And that that is the kind of characteristic of cybernetics, right, that it ties together so many different fields from, like, complexity theory to, like, uh, information technology, uh, like psychiatry, neurology, all sorts of different uh, different fields um, are sort of tied up together in this kind of um, this sort of meta field, which is which is fascinating, right? Because that's not the case of many other disciplines, right? Like it's this seems kind of strange um, in the the way it all came about. Yeah, and, uh, to the point that it's it's hard to say what cybernetics even is as a discipline mm. right um <laughs> so it is uh it, it is very very interesting in that way uh but yes um uh certainly i think that's true uh you know pickering's background was in physics and you know physics figures in here and there in cybernetics uh, certainly but uh for this group the brain and brain science and psychiatry is sort of the point of departure. Mm. And spe- specifically um, the kind of yeah. the, the, the core point of departure is that like there's um, the way the way um, Pickering puts it is that like there's, there's kind of two ways of seeing the brain, right? Like you can see it in the kind of traditional sense of like an organ of knowledge and representation. Um, but these guys see it quite differently that it, it is that, but it is also an agent and an acting machine and a, sort of thing that does performances and that uses representational knowledge to adapt to its environment. And it's like this more, much more like sort of, um, much more active uh, embodied sort of interpretation of the brain and the sort of like its kind of energies as being kind of like directed towards adaptation toward into its environment. Um, right, right. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, it is very much the embodied brain and not the uh, the brain understood as a sort of discrete organ. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, very much the concern of uh, this first chapter is just to sort of lay that out a little bit um, and to give an overview of... Uh, 
where this particular group of cyberneticians fits uh, within the sort of the broader scheme and, and history of cybernetics. Um, so, you know, as, as you would expect, uh, Pickering does start off the chapter with talking about uh, Norbert Wiener, um, you know, the very famous uh, cybernetician who wrote Cybernetics or Controlling Communication in the Animal and the Machine. Um, That's a was, great title. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is a it is a really good title, and um, you know this this book was actually quite a success with like a popular audience. Um, like it was it was kind of I, I think you could kind of compare it in terms of recent books, maybe to like uh, like Piketty's uh, Piketty's book on uh, capitalism, right? Um, that like it is one of those books that like becomes a hot topic, uh, sells a lot of copies, and then most of the people who buy it don't understand what it's about, <laughs> right? right? Because like I mean the general sort of impression I get from reading about cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and the machine is that a lot of people read it and were sort of just overawed by the mathiness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were like, wow, cybernetics sure is some smart stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a good but, coffee but for the, book, right, to make you look smart. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, for those people who did actually understand what uh, Wiener was going on about, um, it was a, quite a large influence, though, you know, um, beyond that broader audience. Um, and then there's, you know, some discussion about the, the Macy the Macy conferences, uh, which were the big American uh, cybernetics gathering, um, many very famous scientists and, of various disciplines uh, gathering for those. Uh, but this is a story that sort of exists tangential to that um, and doesn't really have a very clear sort of like institutional basis in any way. Um, yeah, that's very much the point of like um, that kind of like uh, – Pickering keeps reinforcing is that like these these guys didn't have much of a social sort of basis for their work at all like it was very nomadic and sort of wandering around and kind of like um taking up projects here and there and, and very very sort of experimental and emergent um mm-hmm. but I, I also kind yes. of want to like before we leave uh Wiener entirely because like that's basically the only time he'll come up in the book um is, <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's just, he's oh, he does show up. he does show up once uh when beer goes to go see him and he gets like gives him a big hug or something right it's like oh i suppose yeah yeah <laughs> they were chums yeah but um the origins of the word cybernetics are really interesting, and it's it, it's it's interesting in itself, but it's also like it's it's something that will come up a bit later. Um, but it comes from the Greek Greek word uh, kybernetes or Kubernetes, um, which sort of is basically like steersman or governor. It's actually it, it is actually the the root from which we get the word governor as well, like Kubernetes, governor, and that sort of thing. Um, and it was sort of built by Wiener as this like science of steersmanship, um, which is sort of a really really interesting way of setting it up right like it's 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 often billed as a science of control but i think the science of steersmanship is much closer to the actual kind of core truth of what this field is really about mm-hmm. yeah um it is so you know there is that um view of cybernetics that sort of um departs from the fact that the discipline got kicked off in the U.S. military 
and uh, that, um, you know, sort of like fire control devices, tracking mechanisms for weapons uh, were uh, many of the inspirations for Wiener uh, in, in, in writing his work. Um, and th that, that sort of view tends to see um, cybernetic technology as this, this, this science of control um, uh, of, you know, tracking purposively the target so that you can destroy it so that you can alter the situation to your advantage right it's like a very um, terminator sort of thing <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah totally right like mm -hmm. you know in sort of later popular imagination i think that like you know terms like robot android cy cyborg uh terminator all sort of get rolled together into this kind of scary techno mess right um but uh, the one way that maybe you can think about the science of steersmanship is that, um, you know, one of the things that cybernetic mechanisms characteristically do is that they, they seek uh, uh, homeostasis, right? Um, they, they seek to adapt to their environment. And... <sighs> That adaptation um, to the environment you can see as being similar to the behavior or the activity of steersmanship, right? Um, you know, dealing with the currents, right? Navigating your boat in a, a changing uh, situation uh, with the wind, with the wind and the current, um, but. Uh, cybernetics as a science is kind of a science of designing that adaptive behavior, right? Yeah, so that I, I think that the, the, that idea of like the science of steersmanship, it's kind of a hard concept to grasp. Um, it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Does, does that just mean like being good at steering? Like, is, the, is that what this is about? No, it, it, it's sort of like one level removed from that, right? That it is, it is designing the behavior of steersmanship, right? And like, like, like I just said as well. Like, I, I, I thought I got this, but I, I really didn't until I actually finished this book, right? Like, mm -hmm, this, mm -hmm. this, there was something really profound and kind of um, reading through this and like really finally actually understanding what that whole steersmanship metaphor was about. Um, yeah, 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 and 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 it's easy to get wrong, right? Because like you know, we think about steersmanship, like especially if you're someone like myself who has only a rather limited experience with steersmanship, like who actually like you know actually steering a boat is something I haven't done a terrible amount in my life. Oh, I'm I'm um, too I'm far too delicate for that kind of thing. <laughs> it's not, not my fucking deal at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so like it's kind of unintuitive if you don't actually have any experience of doing the thing, and all you have is the picture in your head of some person with their hand on a rudder, right, or on a on a wheel. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, that I think that that is the the sort of crucial point uh, um, of of what is meant by steersmanship there, right? And the and the way they the way these cyberneticians do this sort of like science of steersmanship and this way they the way they sort of explore building these systems that can steer themselves is through um, or what was it was originally through this like building these like novel sort of mechanisms and and machines that would exhibit these kinds of characteristics of being 
like devices which were reactive and adaptive. That's where we get the the, the, the homeostasis, which is I think the precursor to the thermostat. Or like I think a thermostat is a kind of homeostasis. Um, right. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's also these these cool like ro- robot tortoises, uh, which which come up. And, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the uh, the um, these were um, constructed by Ashby or no, sorry, uh, Walter uh, Gray Gray Walter built these. Um, yeah, robot tortoises or as he called them, machina specu- speculatrix. Uh, yes. Uh, so these are new species, a new inorganic species, um, as he sort of pretentiously said on, on, uh, on the BBC and elsewhere. Um, but, it, you know, these were rather simple machines that displayed uh, more complex behaviors um, when they were put into action. And this is not because they were given some kind of um, rather complex instruction set. Uh, It was just because they had um, a receptivity to the world and a capacity for adaptation uh, that when put out in the world and in an active way would, you know, sort of start to represent the world back to itself, right? That, that they, they would, they would, you know, do things uh, in interaction with their environment and therefore become more complex than just the little simple machines of like a receptor and a, and a motor and some wheels and stuff that yeah. they are, right? And it's like the, the sort of magic watchword there is feedback, right? That like the... Like it's in the simplest sort of sense of like you know your your thermostat it has a reading from the environment of like the actual temperature in the room, it has an internal variable of like a target temperature, and it's kind of got this like continuous process of like feeding back the information and trying new sort of adjustments to try and reach that target. Um, this is all like like crucially this is in contrast with like almost all objects we actually inter- interact with like cars, televisions, toasters, uh, bridges, oh. Any, almost anything you can name doesn't have these characteristics, right? Like, the cars don't adapt to fucking anything, you know? Like, um, even even the smartest machines in your presence, like the your phone or your computer, it doesn't adapt to, to shit, right? Like, it's it's famously doesn't connect to the Wi-Fi, you know? Like, it's, you know, <laughs> it makes a point of not interacting with its environment. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think you can say that a lot of these machines have, over time, been given adaptive characteristics, right? Like, you know, um, like, we've put computers in our cars so that they will... Uh, like you know we have things like um sensors in our cars that deal with the changes in the surface of the road and and stuff like that right like these kinds of adaptive systems have been introduced into these technologies but fundamentally the technologies are designed to be indifferent to their environments mm-hmm. like that is the point of departure for these technologies yeah um, mm-hmm. No, it's great stuff. And like the the sort of next major sort of um, thing that like um, the author talks about is that like so having established this sort of thing about like um, the the brain as an active agent, that's one of the major major things that will that'll be sort of strewn throughout the entire book. But the the other thing that will come up again and again is this like notion of like symmetric versus asymmetric sort of relations between between objects, um, and this kind of comes out of. 
a reaction to uh, early psychiatry. Um, so that, like, the, the psychiatrists of, like, the 50s and 60s kind of, were, like, this, this like, anti-psychiatry um, movement uh, were reacting to this, like, really brutal sort of electroshock therapy that was being used to treat patients in the 30s up through the 50s. Um, and the, the characteristic of that early... Um, technique is that it's asymmetrical right like it is a a commander in the form of the doctor administering a unidirectional force to the patient who is meant to and the, the patient is meant to change but not the doctor right like that's the that's the asymmetry of it um whereas these later thinkers um emphasize the need for like symmetrical kind of relations where like the in, in psychiatry specifically, where both essentially both the uh, patient and the doctor change, right? Like, and they they adapt, um, or they at the very least, you know, behave as if they are peers rather than you know commander and subject. Um, but this this idea is then generalized as well, right? Like that, um, it's like symmetrical relations between complex systems allow the systems to adapt to each other and to kind of move in this kind of mutually adjusting kind of way which is which is that that other big theme of cybernetics yeah yeah absolutely um uh, you know uh beer uh, sort of called it like viability right is this this a, a capacity for adaptation um uh, and and made that you know sort of a centerpiece of his his thinking mm. and the yeah, so like, I found it really interesting here that like this is um, in, in in only a couple of pages, like we we kind of get from like adaptive machines to like adaptive selves and subjects, like a, a adaptive psychiatry, um, and this kind of like eventually feeds into the notion that like cybernetics was you know seen as a kind of a general theory, like a theory of everything almost that like could be applied to practically any field. Um, yeah, and and you know it has that sort of. Um... Uh, like, you know, Pickering describes it as like a protean character of, of sort of constantly becoming new things. Um, but I think also it's it's interesting to note on the point that you raised there about that sort of like strange um, permeability between the organic and the mechanical uh, or the electronic in, in cybernetics, uh, which, you know, down the line we see in um, the notion of the cyborg and the notion of um, cybernetic modification of the body and and in cyberpunk, right? Like this is, you know, this this kind of fluidity of identity and of the body as related to the, the techno structures of the world is, is something that's gone on to like inspire a whole lot of thought a whole lot of, of, of fiction well beyond uh, the sort of rather um, clinical understanding that it had at the start, right? Where it was just like, well, you know, like, like thinking about the brain as a organ of knowledge with like faculties that determine things and all that kind of stuff isn't so interesting. So I'm just going to try to take like some characteristic of the brain and model it in a machine, right? Um, and, and, and see what happens. Um, that's kind of where they started. And then we go all the way down the line and we get these rather sort of like radical theories of selfhood, you know, like we get like Haraway and stuff like that, which is also coming out of, out of cybernetics. Yeah. And it's like, 
I think so. Uh, it, it's also like it should be pretty clear as well that like Pickering is kind of getting at the notion that like this is a this isn't accidental. This isn't sort of accidental, right? That it, it is because it is an immensely fruitful avenue of investigation, and that's why we should be um, taking it seriously in the twenty first century, right? That like yeah, um, which which I buy, you know, like this. I, I am convinced, uh, definitely. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Um, so the the other sort of like the there's also kind of like as well as like talking about the like cybernetics itself and all of its sort of like theoretical foundations um uh, pickering is also talking about like the the people involved right like the the chapters are like about individual personalities but also like he's talking about the context they were sort of working in and particularly this sort of like essentially kind of a, a, a constant absence of a, like a consistent social basis for their work right like they um, it's what he, he sort of refers to it as marginality and and even a sort of an amateurism in the sense of the kind of like original meaning of the word um, of like these sort of like enthusiasts who were doing this work without with basically without any stable institutional support. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He writes, uh, uh, unlike more familiar sciences such as physics, which of course is where Pickering came from. Uh, which remain uh, fixed to specific um, academic departments and scholarly modes of transition or transmission. Uh, Cybernetics is better seen as a form of life, a way of going on in the world, uh, even an attitude that can can be and was uh, instituted uh, both within and beyond academic departments. Uh, mental institutions, businesses, political organizations, churches, concert halls, theaters, and art museums. Like there, there is no uh, institutional boundary that 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 marks off what is cybernetics from the rest of the world, right? Like it is just this thing that yes, it had some presence in the academy, uh, but it was a thing that would come and go from the academy. Uh, it, it, it did not perpetuate itself as an institution because it was basically anti-disciplinary, right? It, um, yeah, it was it was a thing that happened by chance encounters, not by indoctrination of students by teachers. Yeah, there's there's very little con- continuity here between uh, like successive generations of like master and apprentice, right? Like you would you would see in other fields. Um, yeah, there there like there are generations, but the mode of transmission between the generations is typically, you know, the younger person happens to read something that the older person wrote or hears about their work. Um, and then contacts them or just goes and uses their ideas to start with by themselves, right? Like it is, it's just like, oh, like, hey, this is neat, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, <laughs> signing up for a major in cybernetics and then having four years of indoctrination. So like um, Stafford Beer starts doing Ashby fanfic. Um, and just Yeah. <laughs> more or less. Um, I find this kind yeah. of fascinating that like... Um, like so, cybernetics has this sort of characteristic of being like, um, like spreading everywhere, right, and being sort of applicable to so many different domains and like seeping into all sorts of different fields, but it also seems to be basically invisible, right? Because um, when I sort of remarked to a colleague about the sort of like reading this this particular book, and um, his response was, "Well, it, it's I, I, essentially along the lines of, oh, I didn't think that was a thing anymore." 
cybernetics. Yeah. Or I didn't. Yeah, because it, 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 it didn't have any institutional identity. So it, it, it hasn't died, but it, to the extent that it has continued to go on, it doesn't even necessarily maintain its own name of cybernetics, mm. right? Well, it's it's now a complexity theory, right? And um, you know, all sorts of different sort of things. Like, I think there's there's a lot of work being done that you could quite honestly label as cybernetics, but that just doesn't call itself that. Um, right. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, and that's kind of what um, Pickering's trying to get at here is that like it would be really nice to bring this back into the popular imagination and to tie these threads back together again so that it were a so that it just it just were a thing right that you could put a put a name on and like hang your hat on it um, and that it could help us out with a quite a few of the sort of problems we've been seeing in the last couple of decades you know but that's 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 more for the last chapter but yeah. I guess we've been doing our part um, oh, yeah. labeling this podcast. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's so, I found this, like, to be, to be really interesting in that, like, because that thing of, like, it, it's, like, when you read a book and it's sort of, like, it is new information, but it also just sort of, like, confirms a lot of things you've been thinking all along, but in much more clear language than you've been thinking them. That's my experience mm-hmm. of reading this. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, it's this. This like feels. This feels good. This feels like hand in glove. Like a sort of really, really good fit um, for the kind of the problems of this next sort of century or so. Yeah. So uh, aside from what we've already discussed, uh, you know, one thing that that sort of goes with that in anti-disciplinary character is that uh, usually the people who worked in this in this area had a regular em- employment, right? Like they. They, they would go from one job to another, um, even in, in periods when that was quite unusual, um, right? Like, you know, now, uh, like, we have the gig economy and so on. Um, but at the time that a lot of these guys were working, it would be quite unusual to be changing jobs as frequently as they did if you were a white-collar professional sort of person, right? Yeah, um, like especially, like, so you, you look at Stafford Beer's, um, like, career sheet or whatever, and it's just, like, it's basically reads as an adventurer, right? Like, he's, he, he, like, especially for, for Britain in the 1960s or whatever, um, that's pretty weird, right? Like, it's um, not, not a, it wasn't a culture that really sort of encouraged that kind of... Um, that kind of adventurism in in his in, in sort of like the careers um yeah and, and he like you know became a cybernetic consultant to various companies uh during sort of like the business period of his life but like he pretty much invented the notion of cybernetic consultancy in order to have that job right like <laughs> he did that thing of like inventing your own job definition um before that was very common at all right um so is he like he's the original tech bootstraps entrepreneur right like just sort of like creating his own opportunities yeah (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. i mean i i think i I mean yes and no like he did certainly come from like a institutional basis of like having done that within a giant corporation before he moved on to consulting but yes like yeah he 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 like there is a lot of stuff in this book that you can see that like you know was done in the 50s or 60s which you can see like oh that's like very common in the tech sector now right like tons of stuff that has gone on 
to uh, be realized in uh, more contemporary technologies and practices. Um, and so, you know, there certainly is a, a way in which uh, we have to think about it critically to the extent that we are like concerned with the way that tech actually works today. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, like, I mean, this is the thing I think I want to talk about in the conclusions, but um, yeah, I, I, I have some sort of ambiguous feelings about that. So yeah, that, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting point about, uh, about the way that these, um, these careers progressed. Um, and uh, the, the other thing is that to the extent that they were able to reproduce the discipline or what anti-discipline, um, it was usually through gatherings, right? Um, it wasn't through like ongoing institutions. It was like, hey, let's have a meeting. Let's go chat, you know, like trying to get people together from different countries. And if you can't do that, then at least get people from together from within the same country and, you know, get together at this ratio club mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> hang out and and smoke and chat this just um, seems like the coolest lifestyle like I'm looking at the photos <laughs> of this stuff i'm like oh my god i was born in the wrong era <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well yeah but chances are you would have been the the, the schlub who was forced <laughs> to work in, in accounting yeah uh, in some giant corporation for your entire life and you'd have no chance to <laughs> change careers or anything right yeah. like it's almost you certainly. know <laughs> the, these these men were the very much the exception not the rule right like yeah they were they were weirdos who were yeah yeah very strange yeah. boys um <laughs> yeah so the alternate title to this book the cybernetic brain or very strange boys <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck but um there is a sort of crossover though with other with like assorted uh, very strange boys though in that like um just the the sixties counterculture right like was um like a lot of these guys were were involved in it in various sorts of ways and like were like Ashby was hanging around the sort of London art scene beer was like at this sort of the, the crossroads of like um, Eastern spirituality in the in the sixties. The, the the two guys were or the the guys we're not going to be talking about in these episodes, but like um, Lang and uh, and Bateson were sort of big into the kind of um, London drug scene as well, and um, yeah, just like really strange strange stuff kicking off all over the place seems to be the, the sort of message there, and like the but the, the the pivot point seems to be the like common interest in a sort of exploration of the non-modern self right like and um strange strange performances and expressions and like altered states um altered states of both the mind and matter and all this sort of stuff this is real real proper 60s stuff you know oh yeah de definitely um the you know we we saw in all watched over uh the extent to which um sort of cybernetic thinking was a part of hippie culture um and this kind of just like not as much with the chapter we're going to be, be covering but with some of the other chapters you can definitely see the extent to which that crossover was happening yeah and it's and like there's there's a, there's a substantial kind of crossover with like eastern spirituality as well um yes which we will get to talk about with beer because um, he's, he's he seems to be the main one that's that's the biggest into that stuff um but it, it's it's just all over the place, right? Like there's there's these little touch points for each one of these stories, and these these common themes that are constantly repeated uh, throughout the book. Um, 
But there was there was one sort of maybe uh, sort of interesting bit towards the end of chapter one about this sort of like uh, gesturing towards like the political dimension of Pickering's interest in cybernetics, and um, he starts to touch on some of the critiques um, of cybernetics as like the one one critique he sort of like you know, gets at is that, like, you know, we've already covered it, really, but, like, this sort of critique of, like, it originating from kind of militarism, and, like, I think we've established that actually, well, no, it hasn't really, and, like, Pickering points out that, like, of the sort of um, international collective of cyberneticians, like, only one of them was really from a military background, or, like, two, if or, like, if, if you count Stafford Beer's, uh, like, brief stint in the, the British military, um, but I suppose as well, like you know, sort of like a, a lot of a lot of people of that age in that time would have had some sort of touch point with, with the military anyway. But like, it's only really uh, Wiener that like had a, a career in the sort of um, military industrial complex. Um, yeah, and I mean, they're like as as Pickering is at pains to 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 stress or to to point out, like this is a history of cybernetics. It is not the definitive history of cybernetics because. There is another history of cybernetics that we could tell, which very much is like deeply, deeply integrated into the military industrial complex. Right. And um, that's something probably worth exploring later in the show. Right. Like and that, that that kind of like talks or speaks more to the sort of stuff that Adam Curtis has talked about. But there is also this history of cybernetics, which, you know, is substantial and, like, is also something that happened almost entirely outside of military institutions. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I find, it, I find it sort of interesting and kind of reassuring that uh, Pickering does take the time to, uh, at various points throughout the book, to kind of, like, address these critiques that like have been leveled against um against these these practitioners um, yeah i mean because especially like in the case of like beer there were sort of like constant criticisms of that nature leveled against him right um yeah um but i think we'll we'll get to that in in beer's chapter as well so um chapter two does bring us on to like it again like i, I love i love when t- things are titled well um but the the title is uh, ontological theater um and the the core idea here is that like the the ontology of cybernetics is pretty weird, right? Like by modern standards, and in in many ways it is in fact like explicitly counter modern. Um, um, and it, so, should we first uh, describe what ontology is for our listeners before we move on yeah. to to <laughs> ontological theater? <laughs> we need to set the stage before we we get the theater going. Ooh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, go for uh, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, in philosophy, uh, there's sort of like two big games that that people often talk about. Um, one of which is epistemology, and the other which of uh, the other of which is ontology. And epistemology is a system of of theories um, and discussions about how we know things, right? How can we have knowledge? How can we have access to truth, right? Um, it's it's a a way of thinking that is, you know, very, very skeptical about what it is that we do know in the world, right? That's sort of like a classic characteristic of philosophy is to be skeptical about our experiences of the world um, and, and tries to build up sort of 
systems and justifications and critiques of how we know things. Um, so, you know, this is really sort of like famous, uh, famously found in like, you know, Descartes' like radical doubt about the world, right? Um, or, you know, in Kant's uh, thing in itself uh, way of thinking about the world. Another way of thinking about things is ontology. And ontology is like a theory of what is in the world. So maybe some of our listeners will be more familiar with the terms of ontology because it is a thing that occasionally comes up in computer science. Um, uh, you know, uh, what sort of objects are in your programming language? That is the ontology of your programming language. Um, and uh, or or do you have objects at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> uh, get the Haskell get, boys yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, I mean, yeah, those are different ontologies, right? Uh-huh. Um, but in a broader sense, outside of 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 programming or outside of computer science, um, ontology is a way of talking about what sorts of things are in the world and how are we with them, um, and you know what sorts of things are we. Uh, also, so it's it's more of a, a what is here instead of like how do we know what is here, right? right? right. Um, and, and 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 therefore there is this emphasis on things instead of just you know things in the very abstract sense, like oh yeah, there's stuff out there, but like that's not really what we're interested in. We're interested in how we know what is there in, in epistemology. In ontology, it's like okay, but what is there? Right. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> so like ontology is what is there, and epistemology is how do we know it? Um, but it's it, it's also maybe kind of important to point out that like um, Pickering and and like we throughout the reading of this will use kind of like knowledge and representation sort of interchangeably. That like if you have knowledge mm-hmm. of something, you have a representation of it. Um, yeah. And. Yeah. Kind of like usually in language, yeah, right. Like it's a linguistic construct that like refers or like kind of represents the the actual thing. Um, and we'll kind of get to it like shortly. But like the kind of general idea here is that like that's in like the sort of modern times. Like um, we have this kind of like overemphasis of knowledge and a sort of underemphasis of like things and how they actually behave. Yes, and that is like a key point for why Pickering originally found cybernetics to be interesting is because it went beyond just sort of talking about ontology in a very abstract way to actually designing objects and projects and experiences that dealt with specific ontological relations or, you know, specific things in the world mm. and we can call back to the to what we just mentioned uh you know in the, the first chapter about like the two ways of thinking about the brain right like the, you have the way of thinking of the brain as a engine of representation uh of, of purely of knowledge uh or you can think of it as a engine of knowledge plus an engine of activity and relating to things like a, a thing that acts upon other things and relates to them. Um, yeah, it's adaptive. Adaptive, right, yeah. It's um because in, in in a world of in a world of knowledge, in a world of pure representation, there can't be adaptation. 
like what's what's ad- what's adapting to what if if there are no objects right like yeah uh, i mean that that is where kant gets to in understanding the transcendental subject right like the, the, when you when you like you know um there there is this idea of uh god as pure knowing sort of um and uh if you get to that point then god actually sort of paradoxically becomes incredibly stupid right um because god knows everything but there is nothing to know except himself so it becomes this kind of like completely empty system of representation um you can see that in this kind of practice that we have here, we go very much the opposite direction, right? We don't go to this this ultimate idea of the world as reduced down to a contentless knowing. Uh, we instead go towards a vision of the world where there is so much stuff, right? And it is it is it is so various that we could never. And no one could ever uh, comprehend it in a representational scheme. So the, the the content of the world is so rich that it escapes knowledge. Um, that is, it's 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 it's, it's unknowable. Um, and that's kind of what what Pick, uh, Pickering will try to get to here is that like a, a non modern ontology of unknowability. But I think to to get there, we probably need to back up a little bit to well, if it's a non modern ontology, then what is the modern ontology? Um, and he begins from a like a, a Bruno Latour's uh, take on this on this modernity, where it's it's sort of all about dualism, right? Like you have this kind of like in in modernity, you have this like world of people contrasted with a world of things. Um, you have like the split between sort of like I think the implicit like uh, Cartesian split between mind and matter and all these sorts of things. And we, we we just we tend to think this way of like splitting things into like inside and outside. We say you know we 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 kind of do, do this this dualism. But cybernetics is like, in contrast, like very much about systems, complex systems that kind of like break down that division, right? Like, as we, we we saw before, it's like these like adaptive brains and like adaptive machines. They sort of like make the idea of there being a split between between thought and matter kind of laughable, right? Like that. If right. if, if 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 sufficiently complex systems behave like living things, then there can't really be a duality. Really, it, it must be a continuous substance, right? Like, so it's it's non-dualist uh, broadly, and the term in, in philosophy for that is kind of like monism, but um, it's not a it's not a term Pickering actually uses. Um, yeah, uh, it isn't a term he uses. We will get a little bit into that discussion with beer, but. Uh... Yeah, you you could see this as a kind of monist uh, ontology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's there's another difference as well in that like um, it's a difference in, in like cybernetics approach to temporality and causality. Um, so like uh, the, the the modern sciences are kind of mostly concerned with this like the direct and identifiable causality where A causes B, and it's like this kind of like push and pull sort of um, model of causation where the kind of like the effect is either pushed from A to B or it's pulled from A to B, you know, and it, like depending on which which perspective you see it from. But the cybernetic ontology is kind of different in that it sees causation as this sort of like forward forward search, right? That like the when, when you're trying to determine the behavior of this like device when it's placed down in an, a context, 
the there, there is no unambiguous causality. The, the cause is simply whatever happens to happen when it's placed into the environment, right? Like it's the causation or, t- or the sort of notion of temporality is emergent from the interaction between the um, the the object and its environment, which is made up of other objects in this sort of like recursive spiral of, of detail. Um, yes, and that gets to the sort of black box idea, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's the that's the sort of next um, next major thing is that like yeah these um, the sort of the the black box ontology um, comes into it where so like it's from like electrical engineering or whatever the, the notion of a black box is like you're you're literally given a box that's just painted black and just has terminals for input and output and the the engineer can hook up whatever signals they want to the input and the output and like you know, figure out how the box behaves, but has no knowledge of its internal, um, its internal workings. Right. And this is a, this is a really interesting idea. Um, because, you know, the the sort of crucial point here is that, um, for a theory that is more based on sort of knowing and representing, um, the immediate impulse is to pick apart the black box and see what's inside and enumerate its components and their relations to one another, right? Um, but uh, in the case of a lot of these these uh, guys that we'll see in the book, um, that impulse is 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 sort of deeply resisted. Um, and and they're like, no, let's not open up the black box. Let's see how the black box behaves in the world. And that is better than knowing the internals. It's not that it is a, just a different way. It is actually a better approach for them than the picking apart and dissecting uh, way of doing things. Because the, the behavior is the point, right? Like, the, the, the thing you want is the performance. Like, um, and, like, I think Ashby sort of em- emphasizes that, like, in our, in our practical lives, black boxes are everywhere. Like, I have no idea how the doorknob works. I've never seen the inside of one, but I still interact with it every day. And I, like, I, I do a performance with it, and I, I influence it, and then it, it influences the door, and then the door influences me, and this sort of stuff. And like, we actually live in that kind of mode of like existing in a black box universe, or a, a universe filled with black boxes. And it, it doesn't bother us one fucking jot, right? Like, we, we move through this word, world like effortlessly without ever knowing the interior sort of make up of any of these objects. Um, so it, it seems self-evident that, like, yeah, performance really has to have primacy over over knowledge, really, you know? And 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 yet, like, the modern the modern point of view <laughs> is is completely the opposite. Right, right? exactly. Like the, um, the the modern sciences are like exactly upside down from that kind of perspective, right? That like um but it's it's also a common critique, right? That like um I think uh, I remember hearing this this phrase ages and ages ago, probably in my childhood. But then, like, you know, knowing the behavior of a water molecule tells you nothing about the behavior of oceans, right? Like, that's that 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 is a consistent sort of meme in uh, the culture. That's like is is of, is of a kind with these sorts of these sorts of critiques as well. And it's it's in that kind of when you see it from that angle, it's kind of weird that like the the modern sciences still have this kind of vice grip on. Uh, representation over performance, right? Like it's, 
it's a it's almost like a sort of a, a cadaver grip <laughs> like it just it just won't let go of this damn idea <laughs> regardless you know yeah well and that was that was a uh you know that was the crucial point of inspiration for pickering himself right which is that he ran into this dilemma as a scientific researcher um and then started to do research on well how is science actually performed right instead of what is this like, you know, what do we write down as science? How do we transmit that? And then, and then, uh, you know, that sort of like classical uh, philosophy of science concern about, you know, like, well, how do we determine what is truth in science and that kind of stuff? Like, no, no, he's more interested in like, yes, all of that, but also um, how do we actually behave in a lab, right? what kind how what are our actual interactions with things that allow us to do science um so yeah so he was making that reversal and then you will which is that is exactly what led him to write this book um is is that he he saw that dilemma and then he found some examples that were interesting to to study and to discuss um in the field of cybernetics yeah um and it's I mean, I'm glad he did because <laughs> it's um, yeah. <laughs> he, he has a really good style of just writing with really extreme clarity about this this particular issue. Um, you can really tell he's big into it, you know. Um, yeah, and I, he also he, he doesn't hesitate to insert sort of um, editorializing and and his own personal voice into the text, which is something that's very difficult to do in an academic text um, because we're we're taught to do otherwise, right? We're taught to remove ourselves from the picture completely. Well, it's, it's a um, performance, so I, 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 you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's performing so I, I, Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's representing himself as the person who is entangled in the work. Um, and, you know, I, I, can, I can definitely appreciate that a lot because uh, it's something that I've tried to do in my academic writing and generally failed at because it is, it is really challenging to break the conventions of, of, of that writing style. It, it always, like, I think, I think I've definitely found that unless you're writing in a kind of gonzo style in the first place, it's difficult to segue properly between sort of different contexts. You know, and to kind of to change voices uh, correctly, but that's that's the thing that Pickering manages to do, and it's it makes this like a riveting read, um, despite its colossal size. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, like unlike some books we have read, even like even though this is a very big book, I would definitely recommend that people actually pick it up and try reading it because it is enjoyable to read. You know, it's like yeah, it's a big book, but like. It's just, you know, it's it's like a seven-course meal that is good <laughs> yeah. and interesting as opposed to, like, you know, a mountain of cornmeal that you have to eat through, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is not a chore at all. Um, it's like, but it is huge. It's like, it's the size of, it's like as thick as my clenched fist. It is absolutely remarkable how big this thing is. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. But like sort of like but tying it back from like uh, Pickering being like embedded in this this sort of work and like interlinked into the the material, this is the ontological theater, right? It's a it's a world of continuously interlinked performances, um, and the crucial there's a really crucial thing there that like the observer and the controller are never outside of the system; they are always embedded within that universe of interlinked performance, um, and that has deep deep implications. Um, yeah, it's it's characteristic of 
of theories that focus on ontology is that, that, that they they situate the knower within the system of knowledge. Yeah. So we take a bit of a detour then to kind of like talk about like why why is it, why why should we care about this cybernetic stuff? Um, and like the one point that he puts forward is just like well mental gymnastics. It's just cool to think about. Um, <laughs> yes. But also that like and we've sort of partially covered this, but that like you know modern science does sort of make it kind of hard to recognize a lot of the sort of relevant stuff in the world. Um, that. The representationalism is too reductive and that we we actually miss out on a lot of the stuff that's like non-cognitive and the stuff that like, like frankly just resists representation um yeah i mean i think this is completely correct like um i definitely have seen in my life uh having gone through the academic system for most of my life that Generally, it, it it trained me to know a lot of things, but also to be like completely non-functional as a human being in the world, um, and and that is not an accident, right? That is not a workplace culture thing. That is that is symptomatic of our like modern academic mode, our modern scientific mode in general, right? That it produces those kinds of people who are specialists in it, right? Um, I found so. it like yeah, that's, that 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 is definitely the case. But I, I found it like really interesting to kind of think about this um, this stuff about like representation and knowability and unknowability um, in terms of like other stuff like kind of like uh, psychology and psychoanalysis. Like kind of like if you go that like Lacanian sort of thing about like having what the, what the hell is his schema? It's like there's the, the the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Where the real is the part that's outside of the mind that like completely resists symbolization. Um, but from from the and that's there are parallels here with these um this sort of ontology that we're setting up but like it's it's interesting that like the the modern perspective on that is that if if the real exists and it resists um symbolization then it's the fault of the real right like that like there's there's something wrong with the real because it resists our sort of like um imaginary and and, and symbolizing sort of processes um but the the other perspective, which I think is actually the correct one, and is the one that like the cyberneticians and um, kind of later uh, psychoanalysts kind of go with, is that like actually no, that's the fault of the mind, right? Like if 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 you're if the representational system fails to capture the novelty of the world, then that's a failure of the representation. Like it's um, well, I mean that gets you as far as Kant, right? But the thing is that it it is it is. I think that the, the properly like systematic way to view this or the, the, the way that I think that cybernetics views this is like, yes, we have limitations as knowers, but that is a fact in the world, right? Like it is it is it is not that we have a mind that is deficient and the world has an infinite plenitude that we cannot know. It is that the mind is also a part of the world. Right. And that this kind of it's it's not really deficiency so much as there is too much, you know, like it, it, it or not too much, but so much. Right. It is there. There's so much variety. There is so much depth. There is so much um, change uh, that that there can never be one account of the world. Um, and, and that we we have to uh, we just we just have to adapt to the world. And uh, the world will change along with us. Yeah, um, um, which which brings us on to like the the problem of like the situated knowledge, which is the um, 
sort of next touch point, which is yeah, just exactly that. That like it's the the, the observer is inside the system, um, seeing it from a, a particular perspective. Um, but um, at this point, like Pickering sort of goes on a bit of a um, a bit of a sort of a, he, he really gets the knives out for epistemology at this point, uh, and particularly <laughs> yeah. particularly the linguistic sort of turn uh, in which. Um, Basically, everyone decided to kind of disappear into a vortex of language instead of tackling much of anything. Um, and yeah, he really, really doesn't like this. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. Yeah, I love um, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate his sort of like vehement uh, breakdown of of that approach. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's yeah, I think there's there's a lot to that. Um, yeah, the linguistic turn is you know a major thing that happened in the later half of the 20th century, um, and has had just like effects in research across like pretty much every discipline you could think of, right? Um, and uh, I think that well, really, this is sort of like a minor history that predates uh that period but in sort of our lifetimes i think that the the big sort of switch kind of came when latour got really big right like there there are precedents to latour in pragmatism but the thing is that pragmatism became like a very like sideshow minor thing after world war ii and so a lot of what it had to say was forgotten um and it was really with Latour and this kind of idea of like non-modernity that we kind of really started to get this this pushback against the linguistic turn um, and and uh, turn towards towards things and towards ontology and towards this idea of situated knowing and plenitude and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and like yeah, the the, the turn towards ontology is really what um what Peter Pickering wants to get to here, where like um. It's essentially kind of re- restoring the primacy of ontology of the, the of things interacting with each with each other and of the real and kind of like um, is it fair to say that it's kind of like um, sublimating like knowledge and representation as being like a sort of minor bit player in service of the performance? Um, yeah, because um, you know this is this is maybe something we'll talk about towards the end of the discussion. But the thing is like. If you put performance first, knowing is just one part of that performance, right? And and if you put experience of the world as something fundamental, then you're much more interested in what sorts of things you are experiencing than how you are experiencing them. Mm-hmm. Or how right? you know you're experiencing well, them. Or yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry. <laughs> that, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So it would be it rather... Uh, how you uh, know the things that you are experiencing. But then you're using language um, to describe how you know it. Oh, God, we're falling. We're yeah, falling into right. the pit. <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, like if there's all this stuff in the world and it's it's weird and it's 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 hard to, to classify and, and to, to get in touch with, um, to come to grips with, uh, then in, ontology becomes far more interesting than epistemology because... These are challenging problems that need to be addressed, right, in adapting to the world. Um, and, you know, this question of knowing is very much a sideshow. It's not mm-hmm. irrelevant, but it no. is a sideshow. Um, like we were, we were talking about it in the green room, but it's like it's not 
I, I think I had initially misread it as being like a sort of restoration of ontology to like a 50-50 kind of split with epistemology, but this is this is much closer to like an 80-20 sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that feels right to me is that like, yes, you know, epistemology is not meaningless. However, there are more important things that we deal with in our lives. Like, you know, there, uh, I mean, there, there are large sort of swaths of human thinking um in this world that that grew up outside of europe um which really don't spend a lot of time on epistemology at all right and it's like well that that like large history of of human experience that large large breadth of experience is not invalid because it is not epistemologically concerned right it's just you know they were engaging with the world in a different way um so you know like uh you know like for example in india there were very sophisticated theories of epistemology but until buddhism came to china uh you know epistemology was something that was kind of discussed but it was definitely not the main show in terms of what what scholarly individuals were discussing um yeah it's it's a these are these are both ways of looking at the world um and if you focus on the ontological one the epistemological one sort of seems as to be kind of a sideshow okay yeah, yeah i buy it definitely um it's uh also makes me feel a little bit better about not getting to grips with so much of that epistemological stuff. It's always found it quite hard. Like I've 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 come to like philosophy and stuff quite late. Like it's very much a hobby sort of a thing for me, and like being kind of selective about what I'm reading and such. But like, um, yeah, I think I think I struggle with that stuff a bit more. Whereas I read stuff like process ontology, I'm like, oh yeah, that clicks. That's fine. That doesn't that doesn't seem bananas to me. Uh, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, I I really do hope that. Um, later in 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 this show we can we can do some of like dewey stuff because it is like it's really interesting um this kind of uh you know the the person that usually gets pointed to by latour um or by uh pickering is james but um i also think that like reading dewey stuff which is is largely known like in 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 education theory right like people people usually know dewey as an educator or a a theoretician of education but if you read his like other stuff about philosophy um it's it's really really interesting in terms of process ontology and uh and just sort of like it's a real mind fuck (laughs) it's like oh wow okay yeah uh uh-huh it's like you like you think you get it, and they're like, "Oh wait, actually." <laughs> right. that's, that's what I read this stuff for. It's um, yeah. It's good. <laughs> um, um. <laughs> but um, yeah. So like, I think yeah, that's 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 our ontological theater. But um, Pickering does then like talk a little bit about how like it's this this isn't exactly universal for all these cyberneticians. Like for for at least uh, Ashby and Walter. They, they have a sort of a hybrid uh, modern and non-modern approach where they do talk about, well, the universe is fucking filthy with these black boxes everywhere and everything seems to contain more black boxes. But um, it's it's not like they're shying away from attempts to pry them open either. Like it's they're sort of like a little bit half and half on that, which which is fine. I mean, it's it's, it's a hybrid approach. And I think they, but they, they, they're regarded as like first generation cyberneticians. 
and it seems mm-hmm. to be the second generation that go all in on the non-modern stuff. Um, yeah, and even then you do see some use of representational models, which is, you know, that's okay. That's natural. It's not like we aren't... It's not like we can get along in the world without thinking about how we know things at all. It's just... That's not our primary concern in life, right? Which, which I find to be kind of interesting, because it's like... Um, like the it, it, Pickering eventually makes the point towards basically towards the very end that like well we're, we're not talking about getting getting rid of modernism entirely here we're we're talking about like augmenting it and kind of like uh, sort of breaking down the he- hegemony of of modernism but like as I was reading through these chapters I was kind of like getting a bit carried away with it I was like yeah fuck modernism fuck representation like let's go all in on this stuff because you know? <laughs> it's like it's just written in that kind of way where it's just easy to nod along with every argument and go yeah cool let's get into this um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's something we'll address like uh, in the back half of the next episode. But um, there's yeah. There's, he also touches briefly on um, uh, Kaufman and Wolfram, who did a bit more sort of work on mm. like uh, cellular automata and mm-hmm. some other cool stuff, um, which exhibit like they, they don't they don't come up very much again, but they exhibit many of the same sort of characteristics of like. Um, like, uh, it, they're, they're not so much adaptive systems, but they are systems that, like, produce, like, baffling complexity from seemingly very simple, like, initial conditions, um, which is which is about, it's more along the lines of this unknowability thing that, like... Um, yeah, it's, it's getting to that, like, very complex systems idea, right? Oh, I think that's maybe something we sort of missed, that, like, um, he does mention, well, we'll get to it in the next episode, but, like, Stafford Beer's classification of, like, systems as either simple complex or exceedingly complex the first two are kind of like amenable to like modernistic sort of reductive uh, analysis but the, the 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 latter the exceedingly complex systems like completely resist those kind of techniques and they they require a cybernetic approach well and and the 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 the, the point of uh, cellular automata is interesting because a cellular automaton in itself is a simple system um, it is absolutely uh, capable of being represented, right? Like it, you, you can you can literally write a program spec describing what is a cellular automaton of a given complexity. Uh, however, when you actually set these automata to work, um, then you end up with an exceedingly complex system, right? Um, so. That is a very good way of, of of highlighting that difference for sure. So, um, an example the the listeners might be familiar with is like uh, Conway's Game of Life, where you have the grid of uh, cells that are on and off, and then you get this like just like crazy patterns and stuff. Um, or is, is that an example of one of these kind of systems? Am I getting that? Yeah, wrong? yeah, totally, okay, totally. Right. That is um, like a Wolfram thing that is based in cellular automata. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and in like machine learning also is that right? Like we don't understand like they are black boxes. These programs we produce with machine learning, like we don't understand how they work, right? We just make them and they go. Um, we just we just like they are like an excellent example of that cybernetic point of view of like I don't understand the particulars of how this program works, but I know what kind of behaviors it has. Yeah, and let's let's just ride this strange rocket to the end um, and see yeah, where it goes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But like that, that that unknowability then gives you the kind of like inevitable conclusion that well, if if you can't if you can't really know these systems, then you can't really control them, right? Like that, 
control is actually impossible in this kind of like schema because like and i think i've i've, I've read it in in beer's um brain of uh, brain of the firm that like the kind of explanation here is that like to control a system of a given variety or a given complexity it requires a controller of at least that complexity um and so it's it's all it's all kind of impossible and then this brings us back to the steersman image right like the kubernetes the steersman where the steersman in the boat on the ocean, he's not controlling anything. He's adapting to and influencing the objects around him. Like there's 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 no there's no way he can know the position and velocity of every particle in the ocean. Um, there's no way he can really like grapple with the actual complexity of how the boat interacts with it. But he can steer it. And this is the thing. He's he's emphatically not controlling the boat. He's steering it which is different from control yeah which i think was, was fantastic like it was a it was a real kind of light bulb moment um you know right totally and, and 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 you know getting to that sort of that question about uh organizations and 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 knowing the world um i think that the approach that we find in this book offers us perhaps uh some kind of rejoinder to the exceedingly bleak picture of modernity we get in all watched over oh right? yeah yeah <laughs> that um uh we cannot know the world therefore we cannot control the world and like we have come to grips with our inadequacy right like the inadequacy of our knowledge um, that you know, those are the points that that Curtis is really hammering home very, very heavily in terms of like the failures of the modern project. Um, but this kind of adaptive view that we find in um, the cybernetic brain maybe suggests a way out of that that isn't just despair. Um, yeah, um, that that is just fantastic because like to be stuck with the downer ending of uh, all watched over would be kind of tragic you know um, yeah so like yeah that's <laughs> it it. Is. Like, we, we do live in an era where like if you like modernity is hegemonic right like and we we presume that modernity is just everything and that if modernity ever ends then we're just fucked right like the the end of modernity would be barbarism essentially right is the presumption but and we we've come to this point where we we kind of have to admit that like modernity's kind of like gotten to the end of its its uh, its kind of runway on in a lot of regards um and like i think it's it's something we'll see a bit more of in the next episode but like it's um comes to the point where like it's its projects fail because the goals it set itself are literally impossible to achieve um yeah but like that fact doesn't need to mean doom, right? Like it's there is there is in fact a non-modern way of looking at the world, and we can synthesize the two of them together. Yeah, it's just gonna be, it's gonna be very very difficult to get there, right? Like it, like it's it's not like oh we figured the thing out therefore it's over. No, like that is just having knowledge the performance is the important part and that is really hard <laughs> <laughs> just had that, that brief moment of like oh shit we've, we've figured it all out but yeah no it's the figuring it out is the easy bit <laughs> fucking doing it is, yeah. is uh, remarkably rough um but that does that does bring us towards the end of this chapter though with like um cybernetics as politics and that, like, there's this is sort of like, uh, 
you know, Pickering going into critique mode again, that like, um, you know, cybernetics is often accused of being this kind of like, um, you know, science of control or science of command. But like, actually, no, the, the discipline or the anti-discipline accepts at face value that the world is complex and it is filled with complex things and is thus unknowable and thus control is actually impossible. But the the thing that is possible is influence and like if it like under like performance within this kind of reciprocal vortex of mutual influence um you know you you can steer within that system um and it's 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 not a it's not like you know it's not like the con- the conclusion is not that con- you know control is impossible therefore we have to give up entirely um but that like no we we are actually complex we ourselves are complex systems embodied embodied and embedded within this um you know world of complex systems and uh, we're all kind of mutually interacting and the there's like these feedback loops firing off all over the place between all the components and that's you know that's a positive vision really that like it's there's there is some hope for adaptation <laughs> you know which is yeah, the thing, the thing mean, we desperately need <laughs> Right. And, you know, like, I think that uh, in a lot of the sort of cybernetic writing, there is a certain amount of pessimism about the world, but there's also a deep sort of optimism that comes through um, in terms of the capacity for adaptation. Um, Yeah. Well, there there has to be, because, like, it is like going back to the doorknob example from Ashby, like, it is self-evident that we actually get along fine in this ontology. We we do, in fact, navigate a world of vast complexity, and we, we manage to do it with aplomb like we're, we're fucking excellent at this <laughs> you know like and, right. and, and all the occupants of the universe are excellent at this like it is like it is kind of self-evident that this is actually a kind of a fine way to live um and to and to operate within the universe because if it wasn't this fucking universe wouldn't function <laughs> would it like <laughs> right <laughs> there wouldn't right. be anything and that that's actually like we, we, i keep saying it but we'll, we'll get into it with stafford beer as well because that does tie in with his um particularly his sort of spiritual outlook um yeah i guess like is there anything else we need to wrap up on that chapter um no i i think we we pretty much covered it we'll we'll get more into the sort of uh particular politics this leads to in the next episode so um yeah i think uh, we we pretty much got it nailed it uh, yeah um yeah thanks listeners for for coming along with us um if you like the show, maybe subscribe, uh, like, rate, whatever, or share us with your friends. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook as well as General Intellect Unit. And if you've been enjoying the show for a while, maybe think about going to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and uh, throwing us a couple of bucks a month. It um, really helps out with just, like, bills and just sort of the expenses of paying for you know books that are bigger than your hand like in in terms of thickness <laughs> you know um, yes <laughs> fucking what a monster of a book it's on my desk right now it's just it is huge i've had to move my monitor out of the way to get make fucking space for it <laughs> <laughs> i remember checking that book out of the kyoto university <laughs> library and carrying it around in my bag and just being oh, like no. wow like this is a tome um yikes um no yeah but uh yeah thanks for listening and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with uh with part two uh yeah thanks for listening goodbye bye